Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Wednesday, February 11th, 2015. Yep, we're going to continue our jaunt through the book of Genesis as I continue to ramble my way through the book. In fact, I think my lecture uh, that we're going to be playing here works very well with yesterday's program. Yesterday's program was difficult for me to get through. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God so that you can have good, sound biblical discernment to test and see if what people are telling you, the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and folks put out by the evangelical industrial complex as those that we need to be listening to and purchasing their books and things like that, to see if, well, actually what they're saying is sound biblical orthodoxy or if it's something completely different. Now, once a week, we do what we call a light episode. If you're new to Fighting for the Faith, that doesn't mean the topic is light. It just means that we're dealing with one particular topic. And um, in, in times past, I've handed over the microphone and let other people lecture. I still do that from time to time. Um, kind of mix it up, if you would. And uh, what we've been doing uh, on those weeks where you know we're not passing the microphone off to, what we've been doing is we've been playing a series of lessons that I've been teaching at the church that I serve, and we call it Rosebro's Ramblings Through Genesis. And as you can tell by listening to these things, you know I we're not in a hurry to work our way through these texts, and I try to pull in the different implications. In fact, one of the things we deal with here, we call it the hermeneutical spiral. That is, is that we'll actually go around a text a few different times and tease out some of the different themes and things that are going on so that we can drill deeper. This is all part of biblical discipleship so that you can rightly know how to handle God's word and, uh, and well, be able to distinguish what is good, solid, in-depth biblical teaching as opposed to the type of teaching that just flits along the surface. So if you will compare... Uh, yesterday's episode with today's, I think that the two contrast very well. Although, like I said at the opening of the program, yesterday's episode was actually difficult for me to get through. It was, it was very frustrating. And the reason why it's frustrating, and, and let me kind of give you a little bit of, you know, psychologically why it was difficult for me for yesterday's program. Over and again, what we covered yesterday, I mean, there was it was such a thinly veiled attempt at teaching God's Word and what was taught, you know, in the different segments in yesterday's program, you know, if you look at the uh, the the topic, the theme, if you would, I put it was patent. It's patent, isn't it? Patently obvious is this idea that what's being taught is not 
actually what God's Word says. It even it isn't even biblical teaching. And it's frustrating because in years past, you know, if you look across uh, Christian history, you know, what what is it that Christianity has been faced with, has had to wrestle with, and it has been buffeted by? Well, really challenging twists of God's Word and, and major heresies that actually require you to really know your Bible. Well, it seems like we've been, you know, the, much of the visible church has been taken over today by not a really tangibly difficult or biblically difficult heresy. If anything, it's really easy to refute biblically. It's not difficult at all. But what what we're facing now is almost the complete implosion and destruction of any kind of biblical doctrine at all. What we're being fed from so many of these pastors and preachers today, it, it has like no biblical content or basis whatsoever. It's as if the thing that has taken over is nothing. And that is a very difficult thing to uh, for me to swallow. You know, it's just one of those things where I bristle at it because how do you fight nothing? So, well, I think the simple answer is you fight it with the something of Scripture. So, Anyway, I, 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 I'm kind of letting you into my own psyche, and I don't, I don't do that very often here at Fighting for the Faith. Talk about the things that, you know, kind of grind my gears. But uh, yesterday's episode really ground my gears hard. So with that, we're going we're gonna to get to it. And uh, again, like I said, today's lecture, today's installment of Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis, I think provides a good counterbalance to what we heard in yesterday's program. In fact, I'm going to spend the first half of Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis filling in some of the data, you know, biblically regarding um, regarding Noah. And there's certain parts of the story which allow us to kind of fill in the data and for us to consider in light of our own circumstances. So with that, we'll get into the program proper. Here is uh, the next installment of Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis. Here we go. Some people think that Moses had it hard. Moses, uh, he was spent 40 years in the wilderness with the children of Israel. But I think as far as those who suffered the most and the longest, Noah is probably the man. And I want to kind of flesh this out for you with a couple of passages to kind of frame what we're going to look at regarding Noah. So as we get started, let's pray. Oh God, your infinite love restores the right way to those who err, seeks the scattered and preserves those whom you have gathered. Of your tender mercy, pour out on your faithful people the grace of unity, that all schisms being ended, your flock may be gathered to the true shepherd of your church and may serve you in all faithfulness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are in... Second Peter chapter 2, but keep a finger at uh, Genesis 8. Here's the question I have for you. It's not a trick question. How many of Noah's cousins survived the flood? 16. Cousins? <laughs> None. How about brothers and sisters? None. Any of his extended family other than his sons and his daughters-in-law? Just his sons and his daughters and and their wives. That's it. Let's think about this for a second. 
in light of this passage. Let me read to you from 2 Peter chapter 2. We read this a couple weeks ago, but I want to circle back and kind of frame this. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald, or a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So, Noah is a herald, a preacher of righteousness. Think back to Genesis chapter 6. How many years did Noah preach repentance? Longer than that. You're in the ballpark. It's in there. It's a reference to years. My, ma- my soul, my spirit will not contend with man, it says. 120 years. 120 years. So I want you to think about this. Noah is a preacher of righteousness. He preached repentance and the mercy of God for 120 years. And none of his extended family is in the ark. Not one brother, not one sister, not one uncle, not one aunt. No cousins, second cousins, third cousins. What does this tell you about what his family believed regarding his preaching? They didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. Now you think Thanksgiving can be awkward if somebody talks about politics? You ever been in one of those family events? You know, I'm talking Christmas or Thanksgiving, you know, and somebody has to sit there and say, it's time for us to uh, gather up supplies and figure out how to survive Y2K. You know, we got to, you know, and, you know, they're, they're, you, you, you have these really strong political views. And, of course, if you even begin to challenge what they say or have a differing opinion, well, then you're a communist. You ever had these conversations? Is it just me? <laughs> And then everybody around the table is just uh, like this, right? And, you know, and if it persists year after year after year, you end up saying things like, you can't discuss these things. If you're going to come here, we're going to talk football, as long as everyone's talking about the same football team. Nothing personal, no religion, no politics. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And there's a reason for this, and that is, well, because we all have opinions. Now... We have no clue what kind of family get-togethers they had prior to the flood. But human families being human families, families get together, and they do things. And there's Noah, a herald of righteousness. And his message is 120 years from now, if you don't repent, God's going to destroy the world with a flood. Oh, and by the way, I'm building an ark in my backyard. 
city council's having a hard time with it. Getting the permits have been difficult. The CC and ours in our neighborhood are forbidding this, but God told me to do it anyway, right? Now, what's fascinating is when you do the math, Noah preaches for 20 years before he gets married. After 20 years, he gets married and he has kids. And so, you know, that's 100 years of marriage prior to his time in the ark. So there he is. He's preaching righteousness, preaching repentance. He's preaching to people. Nobody's believing him, and he goes ahead and gets married. And, you know, it's just the whole thing is just insane when you start think, putting the kind of the details on this. And what's going on? The people have despised the word of the Lord. They're marrying, you know, the sons of God are mar- marrying whomever they want. And they're not producing sons of God. They're producing the giants, the, the, the fallen ones, you know. And he persisted in this preaching for 120 years. There is nobody in Scripture that has had to suffer more longer than Noah. And it's very easy to miss that fact if you don't pay attention to the fact that he's a preacher of righteousness. And I can't imagine exactly what he went through knowing that he's begging, pleading, preaching, exhorting, rebuking his own family and everyone around him and nobody is believing. Nobody is repenting. And when God puts him and his family in the ark, it's God who shuts the door to the ark. I can't imagine what this man suffered. He is... Most people, when we think about martyrs, martyrs are people who die for the faith. This is a man who probably died a little bit every day for 120 years. The fact that none of his extended family tells us something about what they believed about what he preached. This is the scandal of preaching God's word. And there are times and seasons where the gospel goes out, the good news goes out, the word of the Lord goes out, and nobody pays any attention at all. And the temptation in those times is to tweak the message. If Well, maybe we could just make this message a little bit more appealing. So we won't talk about sin. Let's talk about slipsies, oopsies, and hiccups, and hurts and habits and things like that. We won't talk about sin. Because, you know, nobody wants to talk about sin. And we won't talk about repentance either. That's just, oh, that's that word. It's, it's such a, yeah, it's a tough word. We won't, we won't use that anymore. And so what you do is you start changing and tweaking the message. But when you tweak the message, you're no longer a herald. Because this is kind of, it, the word here for herald is the Greek word caruso, which means to preach, and it's a herald. And you've got to understand this. A herald is not somebody who makes the news. It's somebody who delivers the news. We, and we actually understand this kind of in, even in our own society. We have news readers. Do you think for a second that the people who, you know, when they, the cameras go on, it's the 7 o'clock news here on Channel 4, you know, that those, the people who are actually reading the news, do you think they're writing it? 
No. All they're doing is reading what's coming up on the teleprompter. They are, in the truest sense of the word, caruso. They're heralds. All they're doing is proclaiming what they're given. As a preacher, I don't have any words to give you of my own. None. And if I start giving you my own words, please get rid of me for my own sake and yours and call me to repentance. I have no words to give you from me. None. I can only give you what I'm given. And so there's Noah, a herald of righteousness, preaching what he's been given by God to preach. And the word of God is going out through Noah, 120 years. You know, that's it. You got 120 years to repent. God's, it's in that, this is why a couple weeks ago I liken this to the story of Jonah and Nineveh. Forty days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And what does Nineveh do? They repent. But see, you've got to understand something about God's word in this sense. So, yes, that text does say that he's going to save his family. But it doesn't say he's only going to save his family. There's plenty of room on the ark for other people. Plenty. But he knows that those, the, his family are the ones who are going to be saved. But he want, the call for God for this 120 years that Noah's preaching is for the world to repent, to turn from their wickedness. So if they would have repented, there would have not been a Perhaps. Maybe. That's a possibility. If, it, I, I would use Nineveh as an example. And is it because the descendants of Cain are so evil? No, the immediate presenting problem is that the sons of God, those who have the promise, they are the ones, the Sethites, they are the ones who they're abandoning the word of God, they're marrying any, well, all the hot chicks from the Cainites, as many as they want, and they're despising the word of the Lord. And their offspring are not sons of God, they're the fallen ones. And so... This tells you something. You put it in the context of church. If the sons of God are the ones who have the promise of the, of the seed of the woman who would overthrow and destroy the serpent, that's the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the promise of being released from tyranny under the devil. And they are ignoring that promise, don't want to have anything to do with that promise, and are just going on their own way, doing whatever comes into their heart, following lust. And it talks about how they looked on the daughters of men, similarly the way Eve looked on the fruit of the, uh, of the tree that she wasn't supposed to eat. That's how the construct works in the Hebrew. It's all this lust in the heart. So what does this tell you then about the state of the church, if you would, in the time of Noah? Church has completely collapsed. Even within the church, whatever the equivalent of it was, the preaching of the word, the belief in the coming seed, all of that has gone by the wayside. And if that's gone by the wayside, how does Noah fit in the church of his day? He'd probably be an outcast. Probably stand out like a sore thumb. They probably thought he was a lunatic heretic. Who is this raving madman telling us that God's going to destroy the world with a flood and building a boat in his backyard? Who is this nut job calling us to repent? Quack. 
none of his family, except for his sons and his daughters-in-law, are rescued. So the word of God goes out. But see, when God's word goes out, sometimes it's, it accomplishes the task of being, bringing people to repentance. Sometimes God's word goes out to accomplish the task of judgment. Did Pharaoh not hear the word of the Lord from Moses and from Aaron? Let my people go. And yet, was Pharaoh's heart softened or was it hardened? Hardened. This is a tough thing. So the idea here is is that sometimes preaching the truth, preaching Christ, calling people to repent of their sins and to be forgiven, this is a dicey proposition. And every single one of us knows intuitively, boy, if I say that to that person, I know what they're going to do. They're, going to not, they're not going to invite me to the Christmas parties anymore. If I say that, then, well, whew, that's going to make that relationship really strained. But whose words are you given to give in that situation? Yours or God's? God's. So, this, the, the example of Noah, in a sense, calls us to patient perseverance, understanding that all of us Christians, the church has been given the task of calling the world to repent and to be forgiven in Christ's name and to not monkey with the message. This is what the ELCA has done in their blessing of same-sex marriages. All of this is under the pretense, oh, the church is irrelevant. We live in the 21st century now. People can actually communicate with each other on smartphones. We can't expect this... 2,000, 6,000-year-old book, whatever, however old it is, to be relevant today. I mean, look, people, we, we now have new ideas about sexuality. So rather than calling people who have that particular thing going on in their lives to repent and to be forgiven, oh, no, what we're going to do is we're going to say God blesses that. They're not being Caruso. They're changing the message. And that doesn't grow a church. It kills it. Because it's God's word that makes the church. When the preaching of the gospel goes out, Romans says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So it is God's word that creates the church. When you start mixing God's word with human opinions and start shaving off the hard edges of God's word, you're not creating, you know, a a concoction that grows things. You're creating an herbicide that kills things. False doctrine is poison. Sin is nuts. It's not wisdom. It's foolishness. And it is the ultimate sin to despise God's word. It is the breaking of the first table of the law. So when we look at Noah, keep this in mind. This is a man who paid dearly and suffered long with the message that he was given. There is nobody that compares with Noah. Not for endurance, for length of time, and for results. I mean, the reality of the situation, if, if he's a herald and a preacher of righteousness, if he were brought up before many synodical councils to give an accounting of how his church is growing, they'd all say he's doing something wrong. Because 
everybody's leaving. Nobody wants to have anything to do with it. How are you supposed to have a big successful church if you keep talking about God coming and judging the world and destroying it with a flood? You're scaring people, Noah. So as we look at the story of Noah then, the idea here is is that there are ramifications. And, And keep in mind, the story of Noah tells us about Christ and it tells us something about saintly perseverance in the face of persecution when the message seems like foolishness. Which is similar to the days we live in. And Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse likens the last days as, as the days of Noah. There's, there's some similarity. There's some parallel. If the complete collapse of the church and the, and, and the heeding and believing and trusting in the Word of God collapsed in the days of Noah... And this is ultimately what leads to God punishing. We're in a similar situation. And Scripture prophesies that the last days are marked with false Christ, false prophets, and apostasy. That is a despising of the Word of God and a breaking of the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Because when you start interjecting your theology, your opinions, your doctrines, and imposing those on Christianity, that's idolatry. You're not being a herald at that point. You're doing the work of the devil, and you're sowing tares. We are to preach only what Christ has given us. This is what the Great Commission says. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize and teaching all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That all that I have commanded you, that means the entire body of teaching that Christ has given us, and no Christian is to teach other than that. Nobody in Christ's church is authorized to teach anything other than what Christ has given us. It's always relevant. And it's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So the idea then is, is that the faith that we believe needs to be the same faith that our fathers believed, that our great-grandparents believed, that Christians a 1,000 years ago believed, Christians 1,500 years ago believed, Christians 2,000 years ago believed. That's the consistency, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And thankfully, we have the Word of God and the apostolic teaching, and we are to heed and pay very careful attention to what it says and not deviate, not monkey, not twist, not tweak. Receive, pass on. It's like it's like one of those races where you know they've got the baton. You know the runner does his runs his course and he passes the baton on to the next guy and the next guy takes the baton and he does his course and he passes it on. Now, you don't see a guy you know in, in the middle of those races as soon as he gets the baton go oh man this is heavy get a hacksaw <laughs> get rid of that part and then go and then pass it on. You can't do that, but that's what people are doing today and it's wrong. It's wrong. Now, let me give you another passage here that it's not technically a cross-reference, but I want you to see the tenacity of the apostles. In the face of persecution, it would be very easy for them to have monkeyed with the message, if you would, but they don't. Acts chapter 14. Let me read. Now, at Iconium, they, this is Paul, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So here's the deal. So 
that Paul is on a missionary journey. They go into the synagogue. They preach the gospel. And there are people who believe. But there are also people who refuse to believe. And do the people who refuse to believe that Christ is the Messiah, that he bled and died for their sins, do they just go away quietly? No. Here's what it says. The unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them... Yeah, that's right. Getting, preaching the gospel can get you in trouble. They learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country, and they, were, and they continued to preach the gospel. So notice here... They had to slink out of town because the goal was to stone them to death. And so, well, all right, they, they slink out of town, but they keep preaching the gospel anyway, knowing that this could get them killed. Now, at Leicester, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in, the Lacon, uh, in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. In other words, he talked a lot. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. There's repentance. Turn. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witnesses, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering a sacrifice to them. So they, they misunderstand it. And rather than roll with it, Paul and Barnabas say, No, we're not gods. Don't do this thing. And they were barely able to keep that from happening. So let's find out how the story continues. But the Jews from Antioch and Iconium have persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So in one breath, they're ready to offer sacrifices to him, to Paul. They barely are able to stop that from happening. And then the Jews from Antioch came and Iconium, and they persuaded the crowd to stone Paul. He went from... Yeah, because he's the big mouth, right? And they supposed he was dead. They thought they'd done the deed. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city on the next day, and went on with Barnabas to Derby. Let me show you another passage real quick. This preaching of the gospel, preaching God's word is dangerous business. An epistle that few people read, Third John. John writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. 
For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diostrophes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Listen to that. John here in this epistle is talking about a man in the church named Diostrophes. He names him. And this man in the church refuses to acknowledge that John has apostolic authority. Who is this fool? So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. (laughs) Preaching is a dicey business when you're doing the word of God. Not even the apostles were immune from, well, conflict. And so I bring all of this up because I think as we take one last look at Noah, it's important for us to know and really acknowledge the price that he paid for preaching repentance. 120 years the man preached. Nobody listened. Nobody believed except for his immediate family. No cousins, no uncles, no aunts, no second or third cousins, Nobody in his community believed and repented. They all thought they were just as snug as a bug in a rug. And Jesus says they were marrying and giving him marriage all the way up until the day when Noah was put into the ark. They didn't believe him. But who was speaking the truth? Noah was. And so in a like way, we... As Christians, remember when we confess, we believe that He will come in glory to judge both the living and the dead. We confess it this morning in the Nicene Creed. We have been given a word from God. And the word of God is this. Christ is coming back. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Everybody's going to have to stand before Him. And if you do not repent and trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, He's going to throw your puny carcass into the lake of fire and you're going to burn in hell for eternity. That doesn't sell well, does it? But is that not the message we've been given? So we have a similar message to Noah. And just like Noah's message wasn't all that popular, in in the visible church today, that message that I just gave from the Nicene Creed, which goes way back, that's not popular. That's not accepted. It's not relevant. It scares people. Do you have to be so negative? Didn't you hear the part about repent and be forgiven? That's kind of positive, don't you think? That's the good news, that you don't have to burn. And it's foolishness if you decide to. Repent! You see, there's a similarity today. A similarity that we have with Noah. And Jesus says, the last days will be just like the days of Noah.
And so they are. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings through Genesis as we look, take a deeper look at Noah and the circumstances regarding the flood and those circumstances leading up to the flood. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> why we have to come to these small group sessions are just so boring hey do you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore that's quite literally what i just said then we have the product just for you new from los lobos ministries is beth moore's biblical mad libs well what is it simple Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? Not if you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. But now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern-day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad Libs in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait, doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor. You're not going to get away with this. You can't stop us. We're already in control. Resistance is futile.
How should Christians deal with false teaching in their midst? What should we do when our doctrine and our practice do not sync? What role does humor and satire play in calling out false teachings? These are the timely questions for the 2015 Brothers of John the Steadfast Conference, February 20th and 21st at Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois. Hear from pastors Brian Wolfmiller, Clint Poppy, Larry Bean, Hans Feeney, and Todd Wilkin as they address the theme, When Heterodoxy Hits Home. Also, don't miss out on the No Pietists Allowed parties, the Manly Man Breakfast, and Worship to Feed the Soul. To find out more and to register for When Heterodoxy Hits Home, go to Brothers of John the Steadfast at steadfastlutherans.org. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never teaches God's Word in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right in the middle of the homepage, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking either on the Donate button or you can do it the old-fashioned way. Make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the balance of today's Rose Bros ramblings through Genesis as we consider uh, what it is that Noah went through pre-flood, during the flood, and uh, maybe next week we'll get to uh, the after-the-flood event. Here we go. We fast forward a little bit now. Noah's in the ark. And I can't imagine what he and his family went through. He gets into the ark. God closes the door. The springs of the deep burst forth. Huge torrents of water like you wouldn't believe cover everything. 
everything is destroyed in the deluge. All culture, all society, every animal that isn't on the ark, dead. Dead. I mean, this makes 9-11 look like a drop in the bucket. This makes the, the bombing of Hiroshima look like child's play. Countless numbers of human beings gone in a moment. And there they are. They're in the ark. And I can't imagine that thing has got, you know, high-tech stabilizers on it. Right? Yeah. They didn't have air conditioners. You know, they didn't have big fans to bring fresh air in. Right? So... He and his family, I mean, and it's practically as dark as dark gets inside of that ark. You think you have cabin fever, you know, living in your house during the the wintertime because the days are so short. What was there to talk about sunlight during this event? What they went through was horrific, psychologically, physically emotionally, every E that you can possibly think about, every aspect of this was rough. After being beat up and despised and loathed and not believed for 120 years, he's finally vindicated, but what joy is there in this vindication? None. And now it's important for us to kind of pause in the midst of this and understand that the, what we're going to read now in, about the flood purposely is written in a way to kind of recreate in our minds or hearken us back to the opening chapter of Genesis where God creates the heavens and the earth, that the earth was formless and void. This is what's going on, again, in this part of, of the story, a kind of a new earth, if you would, a rebirth of the earth. A new creation. And this typologically points us to what Christ is going to do on the last day. And it says this, But God remembered Noah. It's a big deal. And when God remembers, it's always in a good thing. God remembers here. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So now God is beginning the process of drying things out. And it's going to take some time. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, that doesn't mean he gets out immediately, but as the waters are receding, the ark comes to rest on a mountain. Mountains of Ararat, these are probably in Iraq today, by the way. And the waters continue to abate until the 10th month. So they're staying in the ark. They ain't coming out. Just because you, you hit land doesn't mean that you can let everything out. There's no vegetation. The land is sloppy, muddy. You don't, go, you don't go plowing your field immediately after a flood here, do you? It takes a little bit of time for things to dry out. 
So the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window. Notice here, by the way, it says tenth month, these things happen. This doesn't happen in, you know, mythology talk always goes like this, a long time ago, in the sands of misty time, right? This says on the tenth month, this actually kind of, you know, there's, there's a chronology here that doesn't hearken to mythology, but to actual history. And, you know, the Star Wars movie, those are, those are intentionally written to be a mythology. And it, they start off with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's mythology talk. But this is not. So, at the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. Holy Spirit's favorite manifestation is what? The dove. So you can draw a line here, and we talked about this. You can draw a line from Genesis 1 to Genesis 8 to Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. Let me, let me show it to you again here in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, the home. And the Spirit of God was hovering or brooding over the face of the waters. The hovering is actually kind of an avian verb, to be brooding. So there we have this picture, somehow an allusion to the Holy Spirit talking in a way, kind of in an avian way. He's hovering, he's brooding over the face of the what? Waters. So now we go back to our text. At the end of the 40 days, no open the ark. They had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him uh, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So they are staying in the ark, even though the waters are subsided. They, they're on dry ground, well, sort of dry ground, and it's drying out ground. And then you have the dove going out and doing this thing and not finding a place to rest and coming back and then being sent out again. And this time coming back with a freshly plucked olive branch. Hmm. International peace symbol, is it not? All of this has meaning. So, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So, kind of typologically at this point, a reenactment, if you would, of sorts of the creation from Genesis 1 with the spirit brooding over the waters. And then you go then to Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, and he's baptized, and the spirit descends bodily in the form of a dove and the voice from heaven says this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased notice how water then is connected always with creation water is there at the beginning in genesis 1 the spirit brooding over the face of the waters water subsumes the earth and there's a dove 
hovering, brooding over the face of the waters, and this is a new earth being born here, new creation in a sense. You are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you receive the Holy Spirit in your baptism, the text says. And it says of Christians, you are new creations in Christ. The creation theme is always linked with this water stuff. It's important. So let's keep reading. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, so notice Noah staying in the ark until God says, come out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Swarm on the earth, it kind of implies breeding. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Watch verse 19. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. (laughs) And the question is, does this hint at how they came into the ark? Some argue yes, and some argue, well, I don't know. So, but it's fascinating the order in which the, you know, they, they come out by families. So they come out orderly. Now here's what it says. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There it is again. Man is sinfully corrupted because of sin, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. This is the impact. Adam and Eve's sin has affected us all. And here's what God says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Infancy. There's none good among us, none. And so God says, I'm not going to curse the ground because of man, kind of despite the fact that the intention of his heart, because God could curse the ground and we'd all, we'd all deserve that. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. But while the earth remains, notice what it says, while the earth remains, that hints at all of this is temporary. While the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold, you know about that, and heat, sometimes, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. These will continue as long as the earth remains. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and of all the fish of the sea. When my daughters were little, I think they hated this part of, of nature. I remember Christina when she was like three or four. She had this fascination with birds. And, you know, 
and the birds are out flying in the trees or whatever, and she would go outside and she'd try to come up and she'd hold her finger out. And, and you know, try, try to get it to come up on her finger. And as soon as the bird realized what was going on, it would fly off in a panic, right? Darn. This, this is one of the aspects of the fall that, you know, that just is bothersome. Really is. Because if you think about it, man, God's critters are cute. But how many of them can really be tamed to get along with human beings? Cats and dogs? Very little, very few. Yeah. So the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So here's the first commandment where God opens up the diet of humanity so that they can actually eat animals, not just, you know. So this kind of argues that prior to this point, God had not sanctioned the eating of animals. So here's the sanction. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require it, a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now this is kind of the first idea here then, that God is going to, he's kind of setting up, if you would, a judicial system. Society has to be ordered moving forward. And here's the idea. The, the earth prior to the flood was marked by violence. And now God says, I'm going to require a reckoning from you. Anybody who sheds the blood of man shall have his blood shed. This is capital punishment instituted by God. Now, this is an important thing. This is not something we take upon ourselves to execute. God has established government in order to punish evildoers. It is the office of government to exact justice for murderers. Not you, not me. You see? And so, and this kind of hints then, kind of beginnings of this idea that there's two kingdoms. In Lutheran theology, we talk about the two kingdoms. The right-hand kingdom and the left-hand kingdom. Now, when Christ returns, there's no, there's no difference. Christ is God and King. And in a sense, we, we think about this in terms of separation of church and state, although that's kind of a tortured way of reading the Constitution. But the idea kind of goes like this, is that God has established two institutions. They're not movements, they're institutions. Institution number one, the church. The church does not exist to rule. The church does not exist to reign. The church exists to preach and to administer the sacraments, to call people to repentance and to absolve penitent sinners and forgive their sins. That's the job of the church, going out making disciples, baptizing, teaching, forgiving. Those are the, that's the job of the church. When the church goes bad, oh boy, the church goes bad when the church grabs the power of the other kingdom. The other kingdom is established by God too, and it's an institution, it's government. There are people who are in government 
And these are instituted by God. Governments are instituted by God in order to punish evildoers, to suppress unrighteousness and exact justice. They're given the sword. Church does not get sword. Sword does not belong to church. Does that make sense? And things really go bad in human history when the church has the sword. Bad thing. Bad. Keep that in mind. It's just terrible examples of this. The church does not, is not called to raise armies. <laughs> it's called to send preachers of reconciliation, calling people to repent and to be forgiven. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. This is the job of the church. The job of the government is to punish evildoers. So here's the idea then, is when the government begins to go bad, they lose sight of the fact that there's an objective standard of right and wrong, and they begin to tyrannically rule and oppress people, or worse, they reward evildoers while punishing those who are doing well. Sound familiar? And when that happens, what's the job of the church? The job of the church never changes. You call the government to repent. You call the government to repent and to turn from its wickedness. This is the job of the church. You know, I, I forget the name of the, um, the man who was martyred for this, but uh, during the time of the Reformation, there was a, 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 an Englishman who, who made a point of basically making it very clear that his job was not to tickle the ears of the queen. And he ultimately ended up giving his life preaching the gospel that he would call he called even the king and queen to repent of their wickedness there's always a price to pay for that always a price sometimes the price is your own life the message never changes the mission of the church never changes the circumstances of what's going on in the world that all is kind of up for grabs it you know varies from time to time and culture to culture but the mission and the message of the church doesn't change at all. So you don't want to mix the two. So as we look here, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This begins to hint at the institution of the left-hand kingdom, governments for the office of punishing evildoers. First hints at it. So I think what we'll do is we will stop right there with that thought, and then we'll pick it up from here next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.